Hello and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast, episode 57. I'm Ryan and I'm joined by another nerd, Carissa. Hey, yeah. Everyone else is sick. Together, we take on this week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now, go read your week's books, and then come on back. Each week, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. This week, the pick of the week goes to Saga number 40. Our companion song is Zombie by the Cranberries, because it's about the effects of, of violence and war on people's like memories that they can't quite shake or move past. And that's a big part of this issue. So I felt it was fitting. And I really like the song. And it makes me feel like I'm back in high school. So let's take a listen to it. Saga number 40 from Image Comics, written by Brian K. Vaughn, art by Fiona Staples. This issue has a lot to do with people kind of being haunted by their past and previous decisions they've made and bad decisions they continue to make in this issue. So it opens up with this kind of trippy dream sequence with Prince Robot and his son, where Prince Robot is on a uh, Pegasus. I was pretty sure that was a dream sequence, but I'm like, you know, that is not that outside of the realm of possibility for Saga to see mm-hmm. something weird like that. It was only when they started talking to his son who is not actually there, and then it turns into the ghost. So they have this really interesting exchange of dialogue in the beginning, where his son's like, you may be a good father, but you're a terrible man. And he's like very indignant. He's like, Squire, how could you say such a thing? And then the kid starts explaining all the bad things he does, like he kills women and children and all this stuff. And he's like, no, 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 no. Not the bad person part. How could you say I'm a good father? And then it changes to Isabel, who he, of course, led to her death. And she's yelling at him and telling him that she was killed because of his actions. But that's not the worst thing he's done. And then you see this image of this person who clearly he is like killed or tortured in the past. And then it gets kind of interesting because you see Curdy and Hazel, Hazel, Curdy and Hazel sitting watching the TV screen. That's his thoughts and dreams. And they're talking about how weird and disturbing these dreams are. And they're like, oh, his dreams are always weird. Like how long they've been watching them. Or have they seen the ones where he's been fantasizing about her mom? Maybe. I mean, because they say that they're always disturbing, but they're more interesting than reading their version of the Bible. They hint that they've done that more than once. Because when he wakes up, he's like, you little perverts, I told you not to watch me sleep. So Mm -hmm. I think they definitely have been watching his TV brain, showing all kinds of weird stuff. It doesn't sound like there's sound, just visuals for what's going on. And then Hazel starts talking about how, actually, Curdy brings it up that if they can't find Isabel, that she's going to be the babysitter for the new baby. And she doesn't like that because she just got her mom and dad back. And now she has to share. And that's unfair. And Curdy tells her that life is unfair. And that's when Prince Robot wakes up and in this kind of like sitcom moment where he like sits up and they start screaming and like running out of the room. Like it's a nice little comic break for what's going on. And then you get, I love the little voiceovers and not really voiceovers. It's like a narration over the action where it's clearly like Hazel writing, thinking back about things that have happened to her. 
And here she's talking about how a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, but families aren't a chain, they're a rope because they're a bunch of like fragile little strands that are woven together. And that, you know, strong families may be frayed at the end, but they're always very tight. So I thought that was a nice little analogy there for what families are like. Even stronger than a hangman's noose. Yeah, she has definitely a a turn of phrase to her. She's Mm -hmm. wise beyond her years. I mean, this is her looking back, but... Even as a child, she's pretty wise. So you have Marco watching a battle off in the distance and the weird little raccoon meerkat thing who's like the grandmother in the weird like floppy hat brings him his sword because, you know, if things go wrong, he's going to need a weapon to turn back the soldiers. And Marco doesn't want anything to do with the sword. He talks about how he's renounced violence. And when he picked up the sword to go get Hazel, it was like a necessary evil. But now that that danger has kind of passed, he's realizing it's really just an evil. And she's like, you don't need to be afraid. Sometimes you have to, you know, violence has a purpose. You know, it's no better or worse than the person who's using it. And then he's like, I'm not afraid. Needs this panel, it's all like in red and he's like yelling at her. And this is what the part where I thought was really interesting. Because he used to be a soldier, same as... And he's saying how he's not afraid to pick up the weapon, that he loves picking up the weapon, that he feels at home with him. The only time he's felt even close to that is when he held his daughter for like the first time. And even sometimes when he holds her now, he still feels more like at peace and complete with the weapon. So he doesn't want that. So I thought that was an interesting way to show the effects that the war have had on him. And you're going to see throughout this issue kind of the toll that the war takes on a lot of different people here. And then you get those weirdo Etten, the guys with like the two heads. They're looking also through binoculars, just like Marco was, but they're looking at him and they see him as a big payday because he's one of the most wanted people, you know, in the galaxy. Yeah. Well, independently, like, wealthy or something. Yeah, what is it that you see? Financial independence? (laughs) And then it cuts back to Gwendolyn and the little girl that she rescued, and they're going to a secret meeting at an outhouse, which is kind of like an outhouse, like, TARDIS kind of thing. It's like she opens a door, and it's, you know, it's bigger on the inside. It transports her to somewhere else. And inside, there's these angels and demons that are meeting there with her. And she brings Lion Cat with her, which is awesome. That cat is freaking awesome. Yeah, the guy's like, "Uh, I don't want that in my business dealings. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, I don't like those, what does he call it, hairless sacks of piss. He's like, I don't like working with them. And she tells him, I didn't bring it here to interrogate you or trick you or anything. I just wanted you to know that what's inside this box is what you asked me to get you. So you don't have to open it up because it's really dangerous. Yeah, and risk letting out whatever's inside out. Which is what they're going to take to the comet to like end the war. So the cat, when she says that, is kind of you know, silent because it's the truth. And then they start kind of threatening each other back and forth. Like, how are you going to evacuate all the civilians? The demon guy is telling her they'll do what they can without causing themselves too much inconvenience to get any civilians relocated somewhere else. But really, this is going to happen no matter how many civilians die, that this this theater of war has been too costly for both sides and it's going to end. And then he kind of threatens her. And I, I love this part where he threatens her, you know, if you're so concerned about needless death, you might want to be concerned with your own. If you betray us, we're going to hunt you down and kill you. And she kind of looks over at the cat and the cat kind of looks up at her. And there's this, uh, bet you never wanted that cat to open his disgusting mouth more because mm-hmm. the cat is not saying lying. You know, he's telling her. Yeah, I like that one. I like the look that they have between the two of them, too. So you get that. And then there's lots of little scenes here. So then you have the woman that they met in the prison, who's the ex-soldier who's um, like a transgender woman so she can go out into the world without anyone recognizing her from her previous tours of duty. This is kind of like a weird like Alice in Wonderland kind of thing. She comes across this talking mushroom that's planted at battlefields to remember the stories of what's happening so they can act as like kind of impartial historians for the future. So she tells her she's looking for 
the ghost, and she tells her it's a ghost town, but there's no literal ghosts here. There's always a moment in Saga where you come to a piece of artwork that is kind of jaw-dropping and not like anything else you've ever seen. And this one kind of pans out and it shows the comet heading towards like the rings of Saturn, but it's this almost like baby with like a ring around its head mm-hmm. that are like the rings of a planet. It kind of looks like Davros from Doctor Who, which I know you won't recognize, but other nerds might get the reference. It looks like a baby Davros floating in space with the comet in comparison. I made a TARDIS reference. I'm not completely clueless for Doctor Who. It's just not my favorite thing in the world. So yeah, so there's this weird, gigantic, like galaxy-sized child thing floating in space with rings around its head. And you can see the scale of the comet like is very, very tiny in comparison to this thing. And you can actually see other planets floating around that aren't even as big as like its eyes. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of interesting. And then this is where I feel like the emotional payoff and tension for the issue come. This is where you start seeing not only people's past decisions from wars they've made, but how those still continue to fuck them up and cause them to make really bad decisions still. So Alana is kind of like looking at her pregnant body and complaining about, you know, what it's doing to her. And Prince Robot comes in like without his like shirt, like leaning against the door, being kind of creepy and weird. And he like shuts the door behind him and she's like, uh, I'm not really comfortable with the lack of shirts in this room right now. Yeah, I like that line. And then you can see sometimes his like thoughts play out across his monitor. It says like lust and that's when Alana gets this kind of panicked look on her face and she realizes that he's high on fade, I think is what they call it. So he has been keeping the fade away that they had from her last dealer and finally took it. Like when the kids burst into the room, you saw when he woke up from that nightmare, him reaching into the drawer for something. It was the fade away that he was going to get. And this is the part that I think is probably the second most fucked up thing in this scene is he then offers the last of the fade away to her. And she used to be a fade away addict. It is really fucked up to offer drugs or alcohol to someone who's Mm -hmm. recovering. But I think he's so far gone at this point, he doesn't really care. She refuses. And he starts talking about how he has feelings for her. And while he's saying this, she's kind of like reaching for like the lamp or trophy to, you know, basically fight him off and, you know, bash his skull. And if he actually comes towards her and she, he kind of points his uh, gun arm at her. And she's like, how dare you, you know, point that weapon at us, you know, her and her child, her unborn child. And he starts talking about how he has feelings for her. And at first he thought they were sexual feelings, but he's kind of realized it's not sexual. It's because she's going to make a really excellent mother for his son, which at first I was like, does that mean he's going to like kill Marco and kidnap her and, you know, try and make her into his wife or something? But no, that is not his plan. So then it ends with this last panel where he then takes the kind of gun arm that he has and holds it up to his own TV robot head and tells him, please tell my son to be a better man than I was. And that's where it ends, on that kind of cliffhanger where he's getting ready to blow his brains out, his TV brains out in front of her. I thought this issue was had some visuals that were really amazing. I thought it balanced a lot of different storylines and had some moments like when Marco is talking about how the weapons make him feel, I thought that was hit really like a hard truth to accept. And then this last scene with Prince Robot is so tense and off because he's he's high and the stakes are really high and dramatic. Very high drama. There was a lot going on. It wasn't just with one character or two characters. Each of the different scenes, I think, brought it something very special to the story unto itself. We know now that Marco has been spotted by one of the bounty hunters. is a big deal. I still don't know exactly what they're gonna unleash on the comet to you know quote unquote end the war kind of thing so that's really tense but then you're like okay they have this thing that they want to put on the comet but then they're also flying by a giant space davros baby so that doesn't seem good 
either. So I'm like, what is going on? This is this like this huge buildup of like calamity coming their way. Despite all that, because a lot of them don't know that, they also have these personal dramatic events happen. You know, it kind of puts things like in perspective and a weird scheme and just how things fall into place like Domino. It's just this very interesting kind of like juxtaposition to it. Yeah, I think it shows a complete livable like lived in world that is all interacting like a giant puzzle piece or like clockwork machinery going. Everything Mm -hmm. is moving independent of each other. I like that every character in Saga has their own life and their own story, clear motivations and goals that are not necessarily tied into the main characters, but it all, I mean, it goes in with the name, right? Saga has a huge sweeping scope Mm -hmm. to it. So I really enjoyed this one. Uh, Lana showed a lot of strength in a situation that is very confusing and it's really hard to play on. And the thing is, though, it is a cliffhanger because Saga doesn't really pull its punches. If they're going to show something getting blown away, they will show you. It's not usually like them to, to imply it and then not have it because, you know, they will show you. Yes, they will show you blood and TV <laughs> parts covering her if he blows his brains out. Yeah. Or if the kids run into the room and see it or who knows what could happen. Because mm-hmm. right now it's, it's yeah. a closed room with just those two people. But there's so many other people on the ship that can come in and change the scene, you know, in a heart. It is actually a really dramatic. There's all kinds of possibilities for what's going to happen next. So I will give it four and a half fade away. I gave it four and a half. I'm not comfortable with the amount of shirts in this room. <laughs> so still in space. Over to Marvel. Yes, Guardians of the Galaxy, number 14, Marvel comic, written by Brian Michael Bendis, pencils by Kevin McGuire, and colors by Richard Isonove. So this, to me, was very Guardians light, in my opinion. It was confusing to me to understand the, like, the time period that's going on. Kind of an off issue. It starts with them still being stranded on Earth, say Central Park, because he's in, clearly in a big wooded area. You see skyscrapers, and they were on the East Coast, so I'm going to go Central Park. And he's eating, fast-fooding, his sorrows away of being stuck on Earth because he is not happy. He finds it disgusting. He doesn't like it. Groot is there, I guess, in camouflage, pretending to be an actual tree. (laughs) And they're talking to each other and Rocket is just feeling sorry for himself and basically tells Groot to shut up. He's like, these mud apes won't react well to a talking tree. Groot basically tells him that, well, you're a talking raccoon. And he's like, what did I tell you about the R word? I love that Groot's dialogue is so... I don't know if it's just because I've been reading Guardians for a long time, but I understand pretty much exactly exactly what he's saying like the response of the people to him is is really clear what he actually said it goes to show how well the writers are also that they can write a dialogue and a pacing to their dialogue that makes it very clear to the readers what i am Groot stands for in that context like you don't really have to think much about it you can just read it as you already know what what they're saying and that's kudos to them because that is not an easy i don't think a lot of people could pull that off well he goes into explain why he doesn't like earth he says it's all because of spider-man and so then it jumps to like this weird 70-esque panel of Spider-Man and all his baddies which that I didn't really get. So he's under the effects of something and then it goes and it shows him captured by scrolls have him tranquilized and captured. They do have a plan for what they want. But it's not clear in the beginning. I do like the bar scene. So it cuts to them at a pub on the other side of the galaxy, far, far away. And they're in a bar brawl like they do. <laughs> Quill's being hit on and saying how, no, no, he, you know, he's a taken man now. I like where he's like, I, normally you not being able to understand me would be a big turn on, but <laughs> I'm yeah. reformed now. Space news comes on and it's been hijacked by the scroll and they show Spider-Man. And they're trying to get someone to translate for them. And they're like, oh, they're saying they want you guys, the Guardians. 
minions in exchange for Spider-Man. Flash tells them, no, it's me. It's, I have a history. They want me, not the rest of you guys. And then the chick that Quill's talking to, she can actually speak Scroll. Apparently she is a Scroll, And she explains it all to them. And they take off and they're going to go and meet them because they know it's a trap. But Flash says, I can't not do this. That person's important to me. Yeah, because Flash Thompson is Spider-Man's like biggest fan. And then they fly to like, it looks like some red desert planet and it's just Spider-Man chilling. I do like that top long panel where it's just like nothing and then tiny Spider-Man hops inside. Yeah. Flash jumps off and he runs in there and they keep on telling him, you know it's a trap, it's a trap. Well, I can tell if it's him or not. And the whole take off your mask. Right, where he's asking like, when's the last time we met? trying to prove that if it's Peter or not. He finally uses his little symbiote tentacles and he rips off the mask and he goes like, oh, come on, you suck. And it's a scroll. Drax and everyone's like, I knew it. He sends the scroll fly and then he comes back up transformed into the thing. Yeah, he's a super scroll. Yeah. Battle ensues and trap sets and all the other scroll ships come and they're attacking the guardians and space battles. Proof flying into thing. I did like when he uses venom tentacle things to throw the scroll into the other ship and crash it. I thought that was pretty cool. There is interesting use of symbiote tentacles. Groot is actually the one who rescues Peter. He breaks into the ship and drags him out and he does the thing like in the movie where he wicker balls him out of the spaceship into safety. Although he is on fire still. So yeah, they win the day. They bring Peter back and they want to take off his mask and Flash, he basically speaks up for Peter. Things that we know Spider-Man to say about not wanting to be unmasked. Flash is his voice for him in that instance which I thought was very cool. I feel like he's saying all this like heroic stuff about Spider-Man and then you have like Rocket's little commentary like his costume's stupid I want to punch him in his face he almost blew up our ship drop him off on the nearest out it's Rocket being Rocket which makes this more feel like this should have been a Rocket and Groot comic more than Guardians almost in that way and I still because of it don't really understand why Rocket hates Spider-Man so much I mean sure it was a little bit of an inconvenience but it seems like a lot for the way that they had him talking in the beginning it seems like Spider-Man would have like screwed them over or done something to them and he was pretty much passed out the entire time, so he really didn't do anything. So Flash denies Rocket's request to drop him off at the nearest outpost and says, no, we have to go all the way back to Earth and Rocket's not happy that. But, you know, Peter was out and drugged this whole time, so when they drop him off back on Earth, he's waking up while, like, out of it on top of, like, a building, and he's like, raccoons don't talk. He's like, kind of like, like he's been hallucinating or dreaming, which I actually think is pretty funny, because he didn't really get Rocket. Yeah, that was basically it, and I was kind of bummed because I was hoping more for them being grounded, which which, you know, they, they say the next issue is called that. But that, to me, was what I was more looking to. You know, the fact that they don't have a ship, they're stuck on Earth. So like, this weird kind of flashback, which I don't understand the context, was kind of disappointing. This seemed to have almost no point to me. Spider-Man really did not feel like he belonged in this comic at all. And it was just, I think, probably one of the weaker issues of Guardians that I've read. It's usually pretty strong, but this one was kind of disjointed and pointless. I gave it three, but you're still on fire. I will give it two and a half. I want to slap his stupid face. So then we have, we're headed over to DC. This was originally Christina's pick, but I'll take it up since she is sick. This is uh, Batman Annual number one from DC Comics. There are a lot of stories in here, so I'll go through all the stories and the creative teams. So deep breath and here we go. 
So, Good Boy, written by Tom King. Pencils and Inks by David Finch. Colors by Gabe Elteb. Silent Night is written by Scott Snyder and Ray Fox. Pencils and Inks by Declan Shalvey. Colors by Jordi Belair. Not-So-Silent Night of the Harley Quinn. Written by Paul Dini. Art by Neil Adams. Stag is written by Steve Orlando. Pencils and Inks by Riley Rosmo. Colors by Ivan Placencia. And the last story, The Insecurity Diversion, is written by Scott Brian Wilson. Pencils and Inks by Bill Qua Every and colors by Matt Lopez. There's a lot of stories in here and they're all really good. Any one of these would have made a really good standalone Batman issue. Like, I don't feel like you got shorted with any story that was not top-notch here. And if you go down the list of the writer, the creators here, you've got A-plus creators for Batman left and right here. You know, you've got Tom King, you've got Scott Snyder, you have Paul Dini, you have Neil Adams. The hits don't, you know, stop coming. You've got Declan Shalvey for art, you've got Jordi Belair for colors. I mean, this is a top-notch, clearly high-production book, and it really shows. So the first story, Good Boy by Tom King, does something that I think Tom King is really good at, which is taking kind of ridiculous bits of Batman lore and turning them into something really interesting. So this is kind of the story of Ace, the bat dog, bat hound, and how Batman found him. So they find this fighting pit that the Joker made with all of these dogs that he dressed up in outfits for, like, different suits of car. So Ace is the one dog that survived, and, like, ate all the other dogs, and Batman doesn't want to kill the dog, so he takes him to the pound, and they're going to put the dog down, but Alfred goes there and saves the dog, and the person at the pound, like, doesn't want to give him the dog. He's like, this dog is damaged. It's a vicious fighting dog that, like, the freaking Joker made. We can't release him to anybody. So he writes them a big check, and says, no, you're going to rename this animal shelter Thomas and Martha Wayne Humane Society. And so he takes the check, and they get the dog, who's this wild, vicious animal, and it's kind of funny, like, the interactions between between Bruce and the dog and Alfred. Like, there's this hilarious sequence where Alfred is wearing one of those kind of, like, padded suits you use to kind of train dogs, and the dog, like, keeps, like, leaping at him and, like, knocking him over, and Batman is, you know, sitting his computer with his back turned, going through all the clues for all these different crimes, like, oh, there are these feathers at this diamond heist, and it's, you know, the feathers of this kind of penguin, so it has to be the penguin. And then he's like, you know, dual hostages taken at a two-by-two dance at a biannual charity. It's gotta be Two-Face. Then there's this one panel where he's just like Kite Man. Like, no clues needed. It's just Kite Man, which I thought was pretty funny. So over and over again, you see Alfred getting, like, attacked by this dog over and over again. Then finally, you get one where Alfred brings in the dog to Bruce, and it's kind of, like, growling at him. And he's... Bruce is telling him that, you know, that dog should probably be put down. You know, some wounds can't ever be healed. And then there's this kind of cool panel where Bruce goes into the clock thing that takes him down to the Batcave, and it closes with a picture of Bruce and his parents, which kind of references back to, like, wounds that won't heal. And he tells Ace to sit, and the dog sits. He's like, good boy. And then Batman comes in, he's got this, like, dagger stuck in his arm, and it's... Ace comes up to him and is, like, licking his hand. You know, like, Ace is kind of, like, much better now. Like, reformed. And then... Alfred brings, like, Christmas morning as the dog with the, like, ridiculous little mask. And Bruce is like, oh, do you want to be a bat hound? You know, do you want to be a bat dog? And he's like, you know, Alfred, it's kind of shitty that you didn't get me a Christmas present. And he's like, indeed, sir, my mistake. Because, like, clearly he took this dog and raised it and, like, Uh trained it specifically for Bruce to have something. And then he's like, world's greatest detective indeed, as he walks out. So I thought that one was a really good story, that it took a ridiculous part of Batman lore, which is the bat dog, made it touching and relevant 
had a nice interplay with Alfred and Bruce and their relationship. And just, I thought it was a pretty darn good Batman story. And then you've got another story. This is the one that Scott Snyder did with the Silent Night one, where it's basically Batman gets a moment where there isn't any calls coming in from the police radio. You know, it explains how he has, Gotham has like 9 million people in it, and there are so many calls per second, and they have this computer algorithm that runs all the calls against like databases and then, you know, routes Batman, all the stuff that should be relevant. And there's these few moments where there's it's just silence, that there's nothing for him to respond to. And there's this acrobatic team kind of in their version of maybe like Rockefeller Center. And they're doing this acrobatics routine where it's a lot of silent panel where you just kind of get to see kind of like the grace and beauty of them doing it in the snow. You see Bat smile. Just a little bit at the corner of his mouth, which for Batman is like an incredible display of emotion. You know, he's just enjoying the piece. But of course, it only lasts a few minutes and then, you know, it starts again and he goes off to, to do that. So I thought it was a nice little moment showing you that those rare moments of silence in the city. Scott Snyder, Declan Shalvey, and Jordi Belair are on this one, so it looks fantastic. It's pretty good. I think it's probably the least plot-heavy one. This is really more about a moment than any particular plot thing that's happening, but I, I did enjoy it. And then you've got Paul Dini's story, who Paul Dini is amazing. He's basically the person, if you like Batman the Animated Series, he's pretty much responsible for the overwhelming majority of that show. He made Harley Quinn. He does all the Batman video games. So Paul Dini, especially here where he's writing Harley Quinn, he's in his sweet spot. So Harley is back from Coney Island to Gotham City, and she's like breaking into the police station, and Batman comes, you know, swooping down, and is like, not on my watch, Harley Quinn. And she's like, oh, you know, bats. And I, I when I read this, I can't do the accent, but I just hear her with her like Brooklyn accent when she's talking. And she's like, mm-hmm. I wanted to make it up for to the cops. I brought them some presents, and I knew they would never accept presents from me, so I was going to sneak in like Santa and leave them for them. And then she has this like pudding bomb that she made with like the Joker's face on it in case she ran into the Joker. So they like kind of throw it out the window of the Batmobile and it explodes. And he tells her that, you know, you may not have been doing anything, but you're not welcome in Gotham. So I'm going to like drive you to the city limits and you're going to get the hell out of Gotham and not come back. So they have this where they're kind of driving along and Harley's being kind of her manic self and trying to get Batman to get into like the Christmas mood and singing him Christmas carols. Like when, when you were a kid, like uh, Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, Robin laid an egg. I love that they included that. I don't think I've ever seen that. You think it would be, but the fact that they brought that, it fits so perfect, especially coming from her. I thought doing the whole Robin laid an egg version of that song was perfect. <laughs> really pretty cool. And then you have kind of these kids who get her presents, and one of them is like a baseball bat with a Harley Quinn design on it. And these uh, older kids are like trying to like beat them up and take their presents for the Toys for Tots drive that she, you know, dropped off all the toys for. And you see this kid with like the baseball bat kind of like framed against like his shadow where it's like the Harley Quinn thing which I thought was pretty cool. So then you kind of have this like kind of like bonding thing with Batman and Harley Quinn in the car where they're not exactly friends but I think Batman is maybe realizing she's not you know as she used to be. So he ends up driving her all the way back to Coney Island instead of just like dropping her off in the middle of a snowstorm on the edge of town and then they have kind of like a dance party in the middle of the night for Coney Island to end it with which I thought was a really great Harley Quinn moment. I know when we read the initial Harley Quinn like standalone series you guys hated it but Mm -hmm. I thought this one was a much different Harley Quinn story maybe sweeter and more coherent I guess I don't know it seemed like it had a sentimental heart to it in this story it felt more like Harley Quinn yeah more like Harley Quinn from the animated series which makes sense because it's Paul Dini so and then you get another story that's this story about this philanthropist who's been making a winter wonderland for kids in Gotham to have a night without 
violence and killers and all of that where they can go and just be kids and ice skate and play and like stuff like that but there's this ice wizard guy minister blizzard he's from the like kingdom of ice it's kind of weird this i think was one of the weirder stories but i feel like this one is probably going to be the one that matters the most because it sets up this really sinister thing where you have this philanthropist who's getting older like after batman comes in and defeats minister blizzard and where he's talking about how like no one lives forever and this philanthropist is going to you know eventually he's going to die. He's done a lot of good with his money. He's talking about that and how he's going to miss him when he goes. And then this freaky nightmare creature from Eyes Wide Shut or Pan's Labyrinth, something like that. You see him going to the old guy and like stabs him in the head with this like ritual, like sacrificial dagger thing, which was creepy. The creature, I guess it's Stag is the name of the story. So, and the guy's wearing this Mm -hmm. kind of like horned helmet thing. So I don't know if this is going to be a new Batman villain. I think it probably will be. was really creepy. And then the last story, is probably the weakest of them, but I felt like this one probably isn't that weak on its own. If it had been its own standalone issue, probably would have been a pretty okay Batman story. But you're going up against Scott Snyder, Tom King, Paul Dini. I mean, you're going up against like the giants. Like even if you do like C plus work, it's going to seem like shit. You have all of them, and this is the one that's artwork I dislike the most. Yeah. It's got the strangest writing and probably the weakest artwork. So it's basically Batman smells this like the smell of like gingerbread all throughout Gotham City, which he immediately believes is like this dangerous thing so that you can track natural gas doesn't actually have a smell and they add a smell to it so when there's a gas leak you can tell that it's there that's basically what he thinks that this gingerbread smell is that was added to it so they can track like the fear toxin so there's this person in the prison who is releasing this cloud of fear toxin into the city and she and scarecrow used to be co-workers and had like or, or something to that effect where they had like some kind of friendship or rivalry with each other and batman shows up to them and injects them with uh, like a stronger version of like a fear toxin that paralyzes them. Then there's this weird part where he's like, you can either go back to Arkham Asylum or I'll leave you paralyzed here in the snow so you freeze to death. And that just seemed very like out of character for Batman to me. Like I get maybe he's just, you know, talking tough or whatever, but I didn't like that part very much. So that probably was my least favorite one. But overall, this annual was fantastic. Just packed with great, great stories from Batman, from different writers. Can't go wrong with picking this thing up. I, I have very high recommendations for it. It was almost my pick of the week, but I wasn't sure which one to single out for the pick since there's so many creators on here. That's probably the only thing that made this not my pick of the week. I think annuals are always like hit and miss because I've seen some annuals which are just stinky bombers. For sure. I'm always sometimes wary to pick them up because of that. Like I've been burned too many times because they are bigger so you're going to be paying more for them. And if you do that and then it's awful, you feel like, you know, you got ripped off. I really liked Good Boy and the Harley Quinn one. I'm going to go back and reread them and the Harley Quinn one the artwork wasn't my favorite but it was good yeah I really like the artwork for good boy yeah for me you know I love Alfred can't go wrong with extra Alfred in your issue you're gonna get more points from me and plus it was a dog not just with comics but in anything where they take an old mythos or like the deep cuts and they twist it and turn it into a viable strong story I love that I give so much credit to a creative team who can do that they're keeping true to the history but they're giving it something more and something like building up the brand even better by taking away kind of like the refuse and making it something right. like decent. I have mad respect for that and I really love when people do stuff like that. So it's like not only do they do that in Good Boy, but in the Harley Quinn story, they talk about when Batman went caroling with the police department, which is like a storyline mm-hmm. from the 40s, 50s, 60s. I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but it's kind of one yeah. of those infamous like look at this goofy shit that Batman does things that yeah. you see. And I like that they they reference those things and like the the 
bat dog, the bat hound is the most ridiculous thing ever. Yeah. But here, I totally believe it. Alfred saw two damaged things, saw the little boy and the little dog, and saved both mm. of them, brought them together. He's such a good soul. That's why I love Alfred. It was good. Well, bringing in that childhood song. I mean, what kid our age has not heard that? I mean, that is this like pop culture classic and for it to be brought in and brought in by a character who it makes sense that she would yes. sing that is perfect. I will give it four and a half Kite Mans. Ah, I wanted Kite Man. Tom King loves Kite Man. You're going to get lots of Kite Man. Kite Man is to Tom King as Kitty Pride is to my, Brian Michael Bendis. Kite Man. I love Kite Man. I'm going to give it four good boys. All right. So over to a little brighter corner of the universe. Miss Marvel. Marvel Comics. Election Day. Written by G. Willow Wilson. Pencils and inks by Mirka Aldolfo. And colors by Ian Herring. I feel this issue should have come out back at the beginning of November. This was another one that was almost my pick of the week, but because of the timing for it, should have come out a month ago. I saw some of the artwork for this issue come out around Election Day. The one where she said, go to the right. polls. And I was wondering where that was. I'm like, man, we read Miss Marvel on the regular. How do I not know this artwork? I thought, well, maybe just one of the artists put it out. Like, But I'm like, no, it has to be from an issue. And well, it, it was this issue. Almost a month overdue. So Kamala's back at school from after her trip to Pakistan. And things aren't as they seem. Like Bruno's seat is empty and she's sad. And her friend Mike is sad. And all of a sudden her brother-in-law yeah. brother comes to school. And she finds out through that that Gabe is there because there's been the lines of the districts have been redrawn. And so everyone's like in a different voting precinct. And so now he has to go to school here. Things are amiss. And he's not happy to be there. Yeah, everything's being gerrymandered. And so she swings into action after school's out and starts researching. I like how she like rides the top of the bus and she has heads to City Hall to go speak to the mayor. And the mayor feeds her a line about this is how things done. Everything's good. I thought you'd be taller. <laughs> you're really short. And then he, it's like the classic trope when you're in movies and you're being bugged. You write a note saying like what you really right. mean. And the mayor holds up signs and says help. And so that really springs her into action like to figure out what's actually going on. I like how she said have it fixed before curfew <laughs> which I thought was pretty cute. This, you know, it reinforces the fact, you know, she is a teenager yes. and she balances a lot. She decides to give her friend, me- it's just Mike. Her name is like Michaela. However you want to say it. Her friend. <laughs> a project to like distract her and give her something to do. Like no idle hands. Keep her busy. Keep her thoughts off of whatever's been bothering her. She's upset about Bruno as well. Bruno is her boyfriend. The fact that he's gone off to Wakanda to study. She's bummed. Yeah. She basically figures out that this person who's running against in the mayor election, Chuck Worthy, is the one who's basically behind this whole redivision of lines. And you know he's a Hydra agent. And the way that the voting lines have been redivided drawn it almost assuredly puts him in the lead and there's no way that the current mayor could even the incumbent could even overcome this and they're like oh well, we can't have this stand but you know voting day is tomorrow what are we gonna do and like i know you like this one where you gotta convince people to choose between an incumbent nobody likes and a fringe candidate working for a secret society of evildoers yeah, I posted that one. welcome to democracy reading it i'm like oh my god it's like miss marvel west wing crossover and then there's a line later on where they're like oh we're watching all those West Wing clips really paid off. When I was reading this, I'm like, Ryan is gonna love this. <laughs> this really drives home the thing we've been saying is 
Miss Marvel as Captain America. It does. I this think. could have easily been a Captain America story. You've got her leading the parade with the flag to get people out to the polls and going up to each person and like as they give their excuse to why they can't vote and she just like shuts them down. It is informative. I mean, this could read as a pamphlet to explain to people about the voting yes. process and what you can contribute to it as a society. I mean, I thought the exact same thing while reading this. I'm like, this just proves how she is modern day Captain America. And this one, like they, you know, shut down all the excuses like, I don't vote as like a protest. And she's like, voting's not wired, so it's not a protest. You're just like everyone mm-hmm. else because only like 30% of people vote. So when you're part of the 70%, you're not protesting shit. She dropped actual.gov address that people could yep. use. It, it is legit. I looked it up. She talks about your company's required to give you time. College students don't know if they can vote there because they're from another state. And she explains that yeah. you can vote as long as you're not registered to vote back where you're from. Yeah. And I love this. This is a medium that comics can really reach to people. I mean, there are people who th- voting in politics might not be important to them. They might not care, but they really love comics. And so they might get in some sort of, I, mean, I don't think you should get your education just from comics, but I do like the idea that it might actually by accident educate someone yeah. by they're doing something that is fun and it sneaks in. I just freaking love this so much. Oh, timing. So they get to the Hydra agent candidate is doing like exit poll, like beach out in front of near one of the polling places. And her group confronts him. And he tries to tell security to deal with them with a taser. And Kamal's like, Yeah, or she gets in the flag and just goes to start whooping ass. Yeah, go play laser tag someplace else. I love it where she's like, democracy is a full contact sport. That's the panel I was talking about, that that circulated around election day. And I saw it all over the place. People had it as their profile picture. I think I reshared it on Twitter. Yeah, I saw it everywhere. This is an extremely timely issue that was late. Uh, it breaks my heart that it was Me so too. late. You wrote a damn near masterpiece for voting and voting rights and getting people out to vote, and you put it out after the election. Yeah. Uh, so frustrating. So they're able to get, was it 90% voter participation? So they didn't even get the lesser of the two evils, you know, the one no one liked in the Hydra agent. They got the wheelchair librarian woman in place, who was the one they thought didn't have a chance whatsoever because no one had heard of her and that's actually who got elected that's what happens when your voter turnout is really low only the really committed so the people who are really far to one side or the other and really into politics or old (laughs) so they don't have to work you know they have plenty of time to vote those are the people that vote and they disproportionately affect elections and who can viably run but if you had much greater voter turnout you'd have a more diverse opinion and reflection of candidates it does end with the whole revolutions don't happen overnight things are complicated and messy sometimes disappointing but you hold out long enough they work i can see how that line and i'm curious i'm like after the fact of our current situation that line trying to go tell people you know don't freak out start a revolution that's a consolation almost clinton had won the election you would read that line as the revolution like a victory victory thing like it could go either way with Mm -hmm. that and yeah. That a woman didn't win office this time, but there is a woman alive now, like a little kid, or maybe not so little, who yeah. is going to. It's inevitable. It will happen. Yeah. Don't give up hope, people. Incredible. It, it's, it's a really good issue. I mean, as much as we clearly are West Coast liberals here, the issue itself is not partisan. Like, it doesn't, it's not like, oh, those evil Republicans or Democrats or whatever. It's more about your right to vote and your civic duty to do so. Even when Kamala was out and trying to get people out, she never told them 
them, don't vote for that Hydra agent. She's like, no, just get out here and vote. Right. She never tries to sway their opinion either way. Good but late. I gave it four and a half contact sports. Oh, that's the one I was going to use. <laughs> that's all right. I also will give it four and a half who really lives anywhere, which is what the college kids say to her. So still in the Marvel Universe, we have Inhumans versus X-Men number zero from Marvel Comics, written by Charles Soleil, pencils and inks by Kenneth Roquefort, colors by Dan Brown. So this is kind of a continuation of the last Inhumans X-Men storyline that we've read. This one I felt was a lot more enjoyable because I didn't know what was going to happen. Like I already knew the bare bones of what was going to happen in the other one, so there was no suspense to me. But now they're setting the stage for what is going to happen next. And that to me was a lot more interesting. So this one kind of takes snapshots in time of the last story that took place eight months ago. And then basically every month it kind of updates you on what's going on with the characters. And to me, the most interesting thing throughout this is Emma Frost is clearly absolutely fucking insane. Mm -hmm. You know, she's been driven mad by Scott's death. She keeps like throwing herself off a cliff to speed up her ability to turn into her diamond form because if Black Bolt comes for her, her diamond form will be strong enough to resist his scream, she thinks, but you know, her flesh won't and she's going to need to be able to make that change instantaneously. And the only way to get that danger is to actually put herself in danger. So she keeps doing that and the Deptford cuckoos who are there, they're trying to talk to her and they're like, but Black Bolt didn't kill Cyclops. No, that was your psychic projection. And she's like, what are you talking about? And she shows them like the video and she's like, this is what happened. So she's fully committed to kind of like the lie that she has perpetrated, that she is believes it so much, you know, that it is her truth in a way. Mm-hmm. And you've got Dr. McCoy, the Beast, uh, working with Iso, who's an inhuman, and they're trying to work on the cure and, you know, studying the Terrigen Mist Cloud and end up in, like, the Savage Lands where there is no Terrigen Mist and there's, like, a spike in the Terrigen Mist there, which is kind of interesting. There's a pretty cool scene with Magneto where he's meeting with Emma Frost and he's got his version of basically the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but it's, it's an actual X-Men team. So it's Magneto and Sabretooth and Psylocke and someone I don't recognize. So they're on top of this metal platform that he has balanced on like a pinprick, basically, that weighs like several hundred tons. And he's explaining to Emma Frost that he likes to demonstrate his power to his team, that he's able to I like, like levitate this huge thing with such precision. And she's like, and also demonstrate to me, right? <laughs> you know, and he's like, yes, that's true too. Because at a moment, if things go wrong, you can just tilt the platform and send everyone plummeting down to like their deaths. So so she's talking about how there are dark things that are going to need to be done and he's the darkest man that she knows so she's going to need his help and then at the beginning of the conversation she's like when I leave I want you to throw something at me you know really hard and really fast without telling me so when she starts kind of like mouthing off to him he rips a dagger out of Sabretooth's hands and throws it at her and she turns into her diamond form in time to stop it which is kind of interesting so this whole thing is kind of setting the stage for you like if you haven't been keeping up with all the back and forth in the previous arc or whatever this one clearly kind of sets the ground for all the players involved, what the basic plot line is, and sets up the stakes for what's going to happen. And it does, I think, a pretty good job of it, of taking you to each of the key players and what's going on. Like, I really like the stuff with the Hellfire Club that they had at the end. I'm not sure who that is she's talking to. I kind of think that that's Mystique, but I'm not sure. You know, I don't know who that is that she's talking to at the Hellfire Club. And also the fact that she's now associating with the Hellfire Club again is ominous. Gamma Frost has never been 100% 
sent a hero, but she broke free of the Hellfire Club. And now that she's gathering all bad people that she knows, she's gathering Magneto and his basically Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, although they're not totally evil, but they basically are. She's gathering the Hellfire Club. She's basically the one who's going to fuck up the peace process between the X-Men and the Inhumans, because Storm's team of X-Men is pretty much committed to trying to find a peaceful solution, and the Inhumans are pretty much committed to finding a peaceful solution. Both sides are like, oh god, I hope it doesn't come to war. You know, if it does, we'll fight, of course, but they're not looking for a fight. But Emma Frost wants the fight to happen. She wants revenge on the Inhumans for what they've done. I thought the art was really good in this. I thought the writing was better than the previous one, which is weird because it's the same writer. It's just Charles Soleil. It doesn't also have the other person in it, so maybe it's a more clear... Yeah, it didn't seem as confusing or rushed. So I'm actually looking more forward to this than I was before I read this issue. Because before this, I was not interested in this plot line at all. I'd kind of given it a shot with the last arc, and it wasn't that great. But this one, I'm willing to entertain it. It looks like it could have some interesting stuff. And I like the idea of Emma Frost being this manipulative person moving between all these camps, causing trouble. Um, So I hope that they all realize that she's the problem here and take her down, but probably not before a lot of people die. I thought this was much better than previous ones. I was pleasantly surprised with it. It wasn't great, but it was much better. There were parts that piqued my interest. The one who was talking to the Hellfire Club, I was hoping that you would have more of an insight on who that was. I was trying to figure it out. Them calling in the young, displaced in time versions of Beast, Cyclops, and Iceman. I thought that was really interesting because they are kind of the wild card. I think some people might expect them to act exactly how their counterparts did, and they could definitely flip a switch and be unpredictable in that way. Right. So I think that's kind of interesting. And then the third one was Beast overhearing what Medusa said, and him just like that look of like betrayal and anger. Right. I thought was very interesting. It's like, especially since McCoy is so usually very even-handed, and you know, even though he is a beast, he, he definitely has been this whole time trying to be fair and just and helpful. You kind of ticked him off. Basically. Medusa has always been, we want peace, but we're prepared for war, and if there is a war, we're going to win. Yeah. She's ruthless when she needs to be. So I ended up giving this one three and a half Hellfire Clubs. I gave it three and a half jumping off cliffs. So this is Totally Awesome Hulk, Marvel comic, issue number 12. Written by Greg Pak, pencils and inks by Hamoud Azrar, colors by Nolan Woodard. Last left off, Cho was going to his sister, who was in a town that was had this monster that was basically, he could feed off of emotions. So he really wanted the Hulk, because the Hulk had a lot of emotions. But then he found a, like a toddler who, you know, they are just emotions and he grabbed the toddler and absconded with him and took off. Chara was on, no longer in the kitty buster suit, but still in pursuit of Cho and, you know, chasing him down. So they're there and they're trying to go after the kid and he's like, I'm cool, I'm good, I, stop fighting me, I'm gonna go rescue and I do like Charlie, like he like promises the woman, the mom, I'm going to get this kid for you. We've always said he's very regal, but this is kind of like the noblesse oblige part of nobility that like, I have sworn to you, I mm-hmm. will do this for you. You have my word of honor. For him to say that is very, he means it and it's important. So they take off. Cho's like not in Hulk form and he goes into this crevasse in this alleyway and it go- breaks down to like the sewer and he's hunting down. His sister gives a description of the guy that she saw before he transformed into the monster and he looks like this and guy that was with chala the shield agent tased cho and he's like oh i thought he was gonna rage <laughs> it was like 
dude. He had a happy trigger finger. He saw his opportunity. He's like, he's not in Hulk form right now. Blast him. And to Cho's credit, even when he got blasted, he was still like, I'm calm, dude. Like, stop. <laughs> you know? Cho finds the guy, he's trying to talk to him and confronts him, and he's like, this kid's not enough for me anymore. Sure, he's scared, but that's not enough. But it's all just like one note emotion. So he wants the Hulk one, because he thinks like the Hulk is an emotional smorgasbord. The monster is holding the kid over like this precipice. Saying he's gonna kill the kid. Let's see some emotions now. And he drops him off the edge, and then T'Challa comes like flying in, because he's been lurking in the shadows, and he grabs the kid, and that's when the Hulk shifts into his Hulk form. So he's trying to tell them, the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, to drop him into the negative zone, Jake, because that was really him and Chala's plan to do to Cho. And the sister's like, no, you know, that will take you too. And he's trying to tell Maddie, but we gotta do what we gotta do. This is more important. And he's basically kind of being a martyr and she's like, I'm not letting you be a, play a stupid hero. She goes out there and she fires at, she's being a little scientific badass. She starts blamming the, that monster guy and then pulls him away enough from everyone where she's able to yell at Jake to zap the teleport button then and he gets zotted off into the negative zone. She's able to draw him away from Cho and right at that exact spacing where neither one of them will be hit by the negative zone transportation. That's Mm -hmm. where they rip him off into the negative zone. Him and his sister have it out. They have a a falling out where she's like, I don't want to team up and work with you anymore. I'm not going to let you do this. You're you're hurting people that you care about. You're being an enabler and I don't want to do that they have like an emotional sibling fight of not understanding each other and she's just done she's saying that he should never have been the hulk and they return the kid to the mom and it's very interesting i think it was good for cho that when he comes out the townsfolk are cheering him on and happy for him it's an interesting juxtaposition that he is not received the same way that banner was as the hulk you know all the news for the long a lot of the issues in civil war were like yeah that hulk does he good good riddance he was horrible he deserved to die where these people are like yeah you're hulking it up in hulk town they're all happy for him. And I also think that after what he just had happen with his sister, the juxtaposition with the cheering crowd, and they have that panel where you have like all kind of like the faceless people cheering for him, and he looks really like alone in that panel. And then finally get a, the payout that we've kind of been waiting for, where Cho shows up a week later in Kansas, and he finds Clint at a diner. The actual one, not the Chala one. At first, Cho is very trying to be intimidating and doing what everyone has expected him kind of to say, like, you shouldn't be alone it's not safe. I'm here to kill you. Isn't that what you're thinking? And, you know, Clint's very calm and it's like, talks to him. It's like, I had good reasons. I've been thinking over and over and over. They have a really good talk. It's very important. I really like where he's like, I told Carol Danvers that she couldn't stop me. I could smash you like a bug. He said how it felt really good to tell her that. But there's no one that could stop him if he wanted to. Super emotional. It's like, but that's not really what I want. And I love that panel of him just transitioning back down to Cho's size. He has his hand like over his face. I just want my friend back. As I was saying, it's really emotional. Yes. And it's just like, I can't help you with that. And he's like, I know. And it's just like, you know, Banner wouldn't want this. And then Clint starts crying. Both crying and they look at each other and they just puts his hand on him and their heads are down. It's like, oh, Like, they just needed each other. A nice emotional payoff for an issue that's been all about emotions out of control. This is an interesting way to, that they're, I wouldn't say their emotions are under control here, but it's like a catharsis that they're having. It's not undirected Correct. emotion. That they're getting that kind of like closure that they need and it's just between them no one's watching them or spying on them it's just it's how they could relate to each other because you know it wasn't easy for clint to do that either and i think cho really needed to see that too right and then cho also needed to confront the person who did it i'm finally glad i got to see this because it's been something that we've been waiting for for a while yep i thought it was totally awesome i ended up giving it three and a half 
smash you like a bug. I gave it three and a half, but I'm not okay. Not even a little bit. We also have a new issue of Ghost Rider. We have Ghost Rider number one from Marvel Comics, Four on the Floor, part one, written by Felipe Smith, pencils and inks by Danilo S. Beiruth. Beiruth? I'm not sure how you say that. Colors by Val Staples and Jesus Abortov. This Ghost Rider has been, I won't say he's exactly new. He's been the Ghost Rider for like a last couple arcs, maybe. But this is the first time when I've actually liked his story. So this is kind of like an origin story or a retelling of the new Ghost Rider. It's all over the place, though. (laughs) Not the first story, but the second story is all over the place. So this Ghost Rider is not on a motorcycle. He has like a muscle car that's possessed by the spirit of like his like evil uncle, who's the gateway to hell that gives him his powers. Robbie Reyes is the new Ghost Rider, and he's a mechanic kind of down on his luck, and he has a, a brother who's kind of like developmentally disabled that he looks after that really looks with a sweet werewolf action figure they do this a lot where they'll have the name of the person and they'll give you some like facts about him and then Mm -hmm. when they cut to the brother they mention that he's a big fan of ninja wolf (laughs) the, the action figure he has he's working on the car and he's kind of like pointing to each piece of the car and asking his younger brother what it is and his younger brother explains what like each piece is and what it does you know and they're kind of like bonding over that cuts to this scene where there's like maybe like a construction site or dig or something that's happening where they found this glob of like alien slime that they've boxed up that Amadeus Cho is there helping them so he's there at the beach and they have this kind of like interesting little sequence where this little glob it can like imitates anything that like bites it can like take their dna and kind of imitate them and it ends up biting him and becoming like this like hulk monster thing but it cuts back and forth between cho at the beach with this alien almost like symbiote creature and robbie and his brother driving around to get to his little brother to go get ice cream and they're driving around and kind of goofing around with each other and being like brothers are you know like oh you talked me into getting ice cream but you know ice cream is supposed to be for after dinner but i can never resist when you want to go get it kind of sweet little interplay there and they're driving down the street and they get blocked by these guys who are clearly up to no good double park you need to back up and not go around and the little brother is like confused he's like why is he so mad did we do something wrong and in the car while his little brother's talking to him the car is talking to him telling him like just gun the engine and run him down yeah so he doesn't though he backs out and goes away like he's he's gonna come back later and investigate but not gonna do it while his little brother's in the car i thought that the relationship between the two brothers is probably to me the best thing about this issue yeah Um, I i really liked it you know he drops him off at home and he gives him his like ninja wolf toy and it's like he has to go run some errands and they like say goodbye to each other and they do the little like fist bump thing when they leave and now it's like superhero time so he goes to track down this van that was illegally parked there and up to shady no goodness and he's following around and they open fire with like automatic weapons on him and you know his ghost rider stuff kicks in and he just like cuts the vehicle in half and you know you find out that there's a crate with immigrants that they're smuggling across i'm not sure if they're you know to their benefit if they're like helping them cross the border or if they're exploiting them or but that's what they were loading into the vehicle that he finds so then you've got this whole thing with cho fighting this alien symbiote thing that is you know really really strong because it bit the hulk so it has like the hulk's powers so he ends up fighting that creature and then you get kind of this thing with the two brothers again where the creature gets kind of like thrown down this is how they tie it all together the creature gets thrown down into like the sewers and is lurking around and watching everybody like under 
under the grates, like very much like like it, like when Pennywise is down in the sewers. That's kind of what it reminded me of. Mm-hmm. So they're at this taco truck getting tacos, and there's these girls that are hitting on them, and one of them is like the new Wolverine, which I don't know anything about. That was kind of a surprise to me because it's not X twenty three. That's why I thought like everything was like kind of all over the place. The Ghost Rider comic, like oh, let's throw in the Hulk. Oh, let's throw in this new Wolverine that thinks he's hot, and like it seemed very weird. Yeah, it was like a new tour of like the new Marvel universe, and then you've got this weird second story, which is about this like female bodybuilder who I'm sure Rory would really like, who really likes the classic car that he has, and she wants that car. So she turns out that she's not just like a celebrity inspirational fitness guru, that she's actually a super villain, like a cheetah-based super villain, who can slow down other people around her, so that when she moves, it seems like she's moving like a lot faster than they are. So she gets in like a chase scene with the new Ghost Rider's car while she's on like a skateboard and they can't understand why they can't catch up to her because they're like the hell machine is like the fastest thing there is so how is she doing Mm -hmm. that and they figure out it's not that she's moving faster than them but she's slowing them down through this like temporal displacement thing that she has so you have that going on there's just there's a lot going on here (laughs) i think is what yeah they're really trying to set up this ghost rider kind of universe and him being connected to all these different characters it is kind of not exactly a mess but there's definitely a lot going on each part is fine on its own it's just they probably could have spread some of that over two issues maybe but overall i thought that the relationship between the brothers was strong enough to make me actually care about this ghostwriter oh yeah i like the interaction between the brothers that was interesting but especially on an issue one throwing in a bunch of other heroes that don't necessarily interact with that character or have any place with it seemed very strange call to me i felt it was distracting unneeded i would have rather had them focus more on maybe the, the bodybuilding plot then or even more relationship building up him and his brother or playing more about the car and his relationship right the end of the second story was a little weird like i don't know if they're going for like a batman catwoman thing like oh we fought and oh now they're on my mind they're dreamy i think i would give it four a body in motion tends to stay in motion even a middle of the road two and a half ninja wolf so those are the books we read this week to check out our weekly pull list and other nerd shenanigans go check out fourcolornerds.com or our facebook page Four Color Nerds. You can follow us on Twitter and at Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. We also have a second podcast for PC gaming for the cheap and broke. Four Color Nerds Broke Gaming. Be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds.